This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from comedian Lee Camp, On the Media, The Young Turks, Planet Money, The Onion Radio News, Chris Hedges, and MarkFiore.com with a bonus video clip for our Apple iOS and Android app users from The Daily Show. I'm Lee Camp, and this is your moment of clarity. You want to really take the power away from the biggest corporations? You want to really punch them in the dick and shit in their punch bowl? Then follow this tried and true plan of action. Stop buying so much shit. Just stop it. Just stop it. Every time you buy a thing, a trinket, a widget, a custom design, whatchamacallit, you give them a little more power and a little more money. The moment you stop, they will flip the f*** out like a redneck on Jeopardy or a Kim Kardashian at a talent contest or an Indonesian six-year-old Nike employee listening to an American six-year-old bitch about how hard his homework is. Or, uh, or Thomas Paine at a present-day tea party rally going, Why the f*** are you wearing those ridiculous hats? Or Charlie Sheen anywhere. They will flip the f*** out. The reason our economy keeps trucking along while Americans can't find work and our social safety net has holes in it bigger than Rick Perry's logic is because we all keep buying stupid, vapid and fighting each other for large TVs and ridiculous houses. The moment we put down the iPads and Xboxes and pocket rockets, the large corporations will feel the pinch. We all know the expression, vote with your wallet, but we need to vote by putting down our wallets, cutting up our credit cards, making do with the hordes of crap we already have. Give your kids a cardboard box for Christmas, draw a big X on it, and tell them it's an Xbox. Kids is stupid. They'll believe anything. And if nothing else, it will prepare them for being homeless in 15 years if we continue down the path we're on. Everyone comes from somewhere. Some from the bottom, some the top. Nobody comes from nowhere. And most of us don't know just what we've got. All the kids that call kids crazy That never get called crazy End of the crazy in the end Increasingly, the world watches the protest called Occupy Wall Street, now finishing its third week camping out in Lower Manhattan. Recent clashes in which police pepper-sprayed and beat protesters with batons drew even the most resistant media outlets. Each new depiction of the abuses of the police on the First Amendment, the more waves of occupation will spread across this country. And you should be proud of that, police, because you are participating in our media publicity campaign. 
Some Occupy Wall Street advocates complained about what they called a news blackout in its early weeks, but in fact, this progressive populist protest did better than its anti-government analog, the Tea Party. According to the Pew Research Center, the Wall Street protests made up 1.6% of the overall news hole in the week of September 26 to October 2nd. The first Tea Party protests in February 2009 received no measurable coverage, True, much of the Occupy Wall Street coverage has been dismissive or worse, but the Tea Party condemned its coverage, too. Soon, of course, the Tea Party scored pots of conservative money in a house organ in Fox News. For now, Occupy Wall Street, which calls for economic justice for the vulnerable but offers no specifics, no demands, and no candidates, is on its own. Thursday was sunny and fine, and Foley Square was full of people, many looking like they'd slept there, which they had. There was food, lots of cameras, the curious and the committed, the latter with signs condemning the 1% of Americans whose grip on wealth and power makes life so hard for the other 99%. The mood was good. Bill Dobbs was sitting at a tiny table with a handwritten sign saying press so people like me would have someone to talk to. He had worked with the AIDS activist group ACT UP years ago. We're down here giving off a loud outcry in the shadow of Wall Street. It has now sparked other similar protests in other cities around the country. That's very important. How does it translate into action? Something more than just a kind of pre-decor without any focus. It's a very clear focus when you say Occupy Wall Street. You think? Let me put it in this way. Easily 150, 200 or more outlets have sent staff down here to do stories, sometimes freelancers. When I look online at the leads, they've framed the issue, often revolving around economics, and I think there's a problem in people hammering and demanding that there be a slogan or a list of things that people want because it's a huge project just to get attention, and that's happened. Wall Street's not going to get reformed overnight, nor is Congress, but there's anger and despair that's brought people down here. There's also camaraderie, community, and fun. And those are the two ingredients that have enabled this protest to sustain itself against the NYPD and the weather for almost three weeks now. You wouldn't be down here if there wasn't some buzz around this. There are a number of people who say the attention really riveted on this place when the cops pepper sprayed people, corralled people, and so on. And then suddenly people were noticing what was going on in Wall Street in a way that they had not before. Part of this protest is media production. Dozens of people out with video cameras coordinating that, uploading it, live streaming. That's how the police misconduct came to light. So we have one working group that's dealing extensively with creating media to project what people are doing here, and some of us are working with media outlets to get the message through. There have been columns and there have been editorials which have said, you might not agree with the way that people on this plaza are crying out, but the issues that are being raised could not be more important. It's, it's been a slow build. What's next? Do you have a plan? 
Uh, right now, the, the plan is to be here indefinitely and to do everything possible to bring more people into it. People come in all the time. They want to know what's going on. There was a sign one day on the plaza that said, if you make less than $250,000, you should join us. Why? Because everybody's hanging by a thread. And that's also true of members of the media. You know, recall a broadcast producer coming through here. He's very grumpy, and he said, I'm really mad because I wanted to cover something else, and my boss assigned me to cover self-indulgent college students. I said, if I may, how's your pension? He said, I don't have one. I said, you know, that's part of the reason people are here. Some protests fizzle, some become movements, the result of an unpredictable alchemy of character, issue, tactics, and timing. Michael Kazin teaches history at Georgetown University and is the author of American Dreamers, How the Left Changed a Nation. Does he see movement potential in Occupy Wall Street? For it to become a movement, it has to become organized, it has to have recognizable spokespeople, it has to have a strategy and not just a set of protest tactics. So this may or may not become one, but right now it is uh, a protest campaign. It's often been likened to the Tea Party, which was often mischaracterized as being purely astroturf, the uh, child of a lot of well-heeled conservative activists. I mean, it was that, but it wasn't only that. No, I think the Tea Party was and is uh, quite sincere grassroots insurgency. It's really the creature of uh, 30, 40 years of conservative organizing on these issues. The rage of the Tea Party bubbled up partly because of the uh, financial crisis, the idea that big banks were being uh, bailed out by the government, and also a frustration with their own conservative president, George W. Bush. So what do you think Occupy Wall Street needs in order to become a movement? It needs to last longer, <laughs> of course, get alliances, not just with some labor unions, but with perhaps immigrant groups, perhaps with some people in the left wing of the Democratic Party. It needs to do what the civil rights movement did, what the uh, anti-war movement did in the 1960s, what the labor movement did in the 1930s, which is to appear to be the voice of people who have not really had a voice about their discontent, their anger with what's happened to uh, the American economy. What we're seeing, I think, uh, between Tea Party people and the Wall Street protesters is a battle to define who's to blame for our economic calamity, who's to blame for the lack of jobs, who's to blame for the political system not really responding. I think that the Occupy Wall Street protest has undergone a transition of some kind in the last week, that somehow it's crossed over into being taken seriously. Oh, I think you're right. I think you're right. Why is that? It's almost conventional wisdom. They can't go anywhere without goals. They can't go anywhere without organization. They can't go anywhere without clear demands and party affiliations. They actively resist these things. They want to move ahead in a inchoate fashion as a, an expression of discontent. Well, I think at this stage, being a little inchoate, being a little incoherent even, but being very clear what you're against more than what you're for, enables lots of people to take part with their own reasons. But after a while, when we're getting into November and December in, uh, in the Northeast, clearly people aren't going to continue to camp out in large numbers. So at this stage, what they're doing is very effective. If it continues to go on, people in the media will say, well, you did this for two months. What are you going to do next? But I'm still puzzled. Why are they even effective now? Well, partly, 
talk about the media, I think there's been a sense that with this economic uh, discontent, not just here, but elsewhere in the world, it's that why aren't Americans angrier about this? Why are the only Americans angry, angry about the government? So I think for very good reasons, a lot of people in the media have been looking for this to happen for some time. And once it starts to happen, they cover it and the coverage itself helps to generate more interest. The uh, Vancouver-based anti-consumerist magazine Adbusters kicked this whole thing off with a call to Occupy Wall Street last summer. Its co-founder told Salon that Adbusters was a student of the situationist movement. This is the idea that if you have a very powerful meme, an idea, and the moment is ripe, then that is in itself enough to ignite a revolution. Well, the situations did not ignite a revolution. They did ignite a very powerful movement that was pretty short-lived in France and uh, a few other countries. And they were influential to a certain degree among some new left intellectuals in this country as well. The fact that most people in your listening audience have never heard of them itself, I think, is, a, uh, <laughs> is an indication that their influence was uh, interesting but not highly significant, I don't think. One thing they did make clear, and this was certainly happening in the 60s with people like Abby Hoffman, Jerry Rubin, the Yippies, is that they realized that if you can be humorous and uh, provocative and make the powers of be look small, look ridiculous, you can really get people on your side. I guess I subscribe, to my own surprise, to a kind of ether theory of movements in that, you know, in the Tea Party, you had all of this anger going into the ether. It didn't really matter whether the facts were right or wrong. There was a kind of change in the temperature, and suddenly these ideas were everywhere just filling the air. It strikes me that this is an attempt to change the temperature again, to change how people see the world. <laughs> As a historian, I think that nothing comes from nothing. And it's still, in numbers, fairly small, that has to be said. But then, of course, the four people who sat in at lunch counters in uh, Greensboro, North Carolina in 1960, it was also a small group, but they were representing a larger group. So size itself isn't enough. But I think uh, people in the media are groping to sort of understand who these people are, uh, whether they are really on the left or whether they are just a group of fairly non-ideological people. All these questions seem to be open. Do you have any notion of which way you think this could go? This is the fun about being a historian. You know, these, these things are not predictable. They really have to keep adapting to changes in the structures that they are protesting. People make their own history, but not as they please, as this... Uh, famous leftist Karl Marx wrote <laughs> in the 19th century. Michael, thank you very much. Uh, you're very welcome. I hope you enjoyed this show, but also consider it a valuable tool for not only aggregating, but more importantly, amplifying our view of progressive politics in the world. So if that's true, I ask you to support this work by becoming a member of the show at whatever level you're able, as anything from a basic leftist up through the ranks of socialist, communist, Satanist, or even the most reviled level of support, George Soros. I produce 11 episodes a month of fearless coverage on all the hot-button issues we face, maintaining a rock-solid schedule. So if that sounds worth supporting, please consider signing up to donate as little as $5 a month or even $55 a year. Members also gain access to bonus audio and video content that doesn't make it into the show itself. So for a concrete way to support a strong progressive voice, please visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com.
Let's go to Bill O'Reilly. Let's see his take on uh, Occupy Wall Street. He's going to be talking to Juan Williams. Let's go to clip number 11. Look at those, the, the Occupy Wall Street movement that you're seeing right there firsthand in New York. It's now spreading around the country. This weekend it's in L.A., San Francisco, Pittsburgh, But you, you don't think this it's, is spontaneous, do you? You don't think these Yeah, I do. I think it's oh, they're organic. Not. They're, they're, there's groups behind. I these do. are professional people. These people we oh, said, well, Jesse, like saying, we said Jesse Waters out like, there. These people that yeah. just wander around. They're, they're they, not, look, these not are, Yeah, but they're jobless. They're jobless. They're jobless young because people. they don't want to work. They admitted it no, to that's us. that's not true. They won't oh, work for the no, corporate demand. There, there is high unemployment among young Americans because this economy is having Why? such trouble. And young people are having a you, difficult Juan. time finding Let me break work. It to you. If you have a college degree in this country, unemployment's 4.5%. Okay, yes. Juan? So all of these yes, people, all they have people... to do is take a shower and they can get a job if they went to college. That's all. Oh, you want to talk about smug? And you want to talk about condescending? Bill O'Reilly, man, nicely done. You outdid Aaron Burnett, and that was hard to do. First of all, did you see him contradicting himself in the middle of that basically less than a minute? He said, oh, we went down there. We know they're all professionals. Here we go again with a conspiracy theory. Herman Cain has a conspiracy theory. Who, which, which professionals? But then he immediately turns around and goes, ah, they're all bums. They don't want to work. They admitted it to us. Really? You, they admitted, yes, the people that, that occupy Wall Street went over to Bill O'Reilly and said, oh, I'm so sorry, we admit it, we're bums. Yeah, that happened. That's very likely. And he said, oh, yeah, what, what do they do? They just wander around. Yeah, they, for example, they're doing a march today. So they wander from one part to another. That is called a protest, a march. That's how it works. And he said, oh, they wander around. Why don't they just take a shower and they can get a job? Of course, uh, he doesn't talk about how uh, the unemployment rate is for young people. He says college graduates in general. He doesn't talk about non-college graduates. I guess he doesn't give a damn about them. None of that matters to Bill O'Reilly. We've got over 9% unemployment. It will only matter to him when it comes to blaming President Obama for all of it. But when people are actually concerned about it, why don't they just take a shower? Here's more O'Reilly. And okay. you've gone after the oil companies. Absolutely. Right? And GE and, 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 the, and, the, and the companies and that don't all pay the taxes. bailouts for Wall Street. Absolutely. The bailouts people makes people on the left. That's not and what the this right is upset. all about, Juan. That's not what this is oh. all about. This is I hate capitalism. I want this socialist nirvana. And I'm gonna disrupt everybody's life to make it to make my point. That's wrong. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. When did Bill O'Reilly become the spokesperson for Occupy Wall Street? I must have missed that memo. All of a sudden, O'Reilly knows, ah, this is all about a socialist nirvana. Okay? And they, they want to end capitalism. Really? Who said that? I read the 22 declarations that they put out. That wasn't any of them. I talked to a lot of people. Nobody ever said they want to end capitalism. They say, hey, can you please stop buying our politicians? It's not, nobody ever said there should be no banks. The question is, should the banks be allowed to purchase all of our politicians so that they get monopolies and they get rules in their favor? That's what the protest is about. But of course, O'Reilly knows that, doesn't want to acknowledge it. He just wants to say, ah, they're just a bunch of bumps who are communists and socialists and looking for that nirvana. All right, now Herman Cain has a similar theory. Let's go back up to clip seven. Don't blame Wall Street. Don't blame the big banks. If you don't have a job and you're not rich, blame yourself. You don't think the banks have anything to do with the uh, crisis that we went into in 2008? 
they did have something to do with the crisis that we went into in 2008, but we are not in 2008, we're in 2011, <laughs> okay? Yes, they had a big part to do with it. And, that, and obviously you could go back and say, okay, what, what, did this, what did the banks do to do this? These demonstrations, I honestly don't understand. What are they looking for? Well, that's because you're not that bright. <laughs> they put out 22 declarations of what they're looking for, which are incredibly specific. Can you not read? Is that part of your problem? Okay. He says, I don't know. You know, the poor banks. Oh, did they cause a crash back in 2008? Sure. But it's, that's water under the bridge. It's 2011. When did everybody lose their jobs? After 2008, right? That's when we shot up to 9, 10% unemployment. Oh, but now that doesn't count because people are supposed to just magically get jobs in an economy where they, there isn't. You know, that there is 4.3 uh, applicants per every job opening. So it's not like these people aren't looking. And here's the part I never understand. Okay, you had about, let's say, 4 to 5% unemployment, now, then you had 9 to 10% unemployment. On average, about 5% unemployment added, doubled, right? The unemployment did. So did that 5% of the population all of a sudden become bums? Or could it be that the economic circumstance created by the banks made the situation so bad that that 5% couldn't get jobs? Are they saying all of a sudden in 2008, 5% of the population was like, yeah, I'm a bum, I'm not going to take a shower, I want a socialist nirvana, and I, you know, I, I'm going to blame the banks and I'm just going to sit on my ass. No, they're out there looking for a job and they can't find one. And Herman Cain, what a great summary of the Republican position. Well, why don't you just become rich? Well, what are you guys complaining about? Just go be rich and then you wouldn't have a problem. Oh, is that right? Oh, okay. Oh, thanks. I didn't know that. Surely you've heard by now about the hundreds of people living and protesting in Zuccotti Park. It's a plaza near Wall Street in downtown Manhattan, and they've been there for the last couple weeks. Here in New York, it's just all-consuming. It's all over the media. You know, we see these protesters walking around. And the protests seem to be getting bigger and bigger. This week, a lot of labor unions joined in. Congress people have been coming out in support of the protesters. My dad called me today to ask if he should go. And My brother's flying in from Seattle to go to Wall Street and join the protesters. So, But, but you and I, Adam, we're Planet Money, and we cover a lot of what takes place on Wall Street. So we wanted to find out what exactly are these Wall Street protesters against. So we went to the park. The park is crowded. It's a little dirty. It's it's not that big a square. It's just one block long, and the crowd skews mostly young and bearded, army jacketed and sweatshirted. And there are a myriad of signs against lobbyists, against banks, against the war. And it was like a detective job at first. Like, so, so what are these people for? And at first, we realized everyone was giving us slightly different answers. Well, I'm here on my own agenda. 
Other people have their own agenda in here or what they're here for. We don't have one specific agenda in here. We don't have demands. Read your sign. College degree equals unemployment and lobbyist equals bribery. Thank you, Wall Street. Thank you, Wall Street. The first guy there refused to give us his name. The second person is Jillian Cipriano. She's a recent college grad from Staten Island. And she said the main reason she's here is she can't find a job and it makes her mad and she's frustrated with the political process. We ran into a punk from the Lower East Side who was against police brutality. We found grandmothers against the war. This girl from Brooklyn with a list of suggestions supporting everything from the carbon tax to libraries. And then we caught up with this guy who said he couldn't stand and talk to us because he was in a rush to get zombified. Can we walk with you? What does getting zombified mean, by the way? I'm zombie makeup to make myself represent a dead person. Gotcha. Now, you have a Ron Paul sticker? Sure do. Are you a libertarian, would you call yourself? I am, definitely. And is this... I know there's not one view, etc., but have you felt welcome here? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, this is all about community. We're not, we're not trying to marginalize anyone's voices. We're just trying to unite each other, you know? During the day, Zuccotti Park has the feel of, like, a festival. You know, there's free food out. People are playing music, wandering around, napping under trees. I saw a few people smoking joints. And we thought, all right, it's this big park full of independent thinkers, all of different views. Is there like a unified thing here? Is there is is there some way that this is different from any other park in Manhattan where there's lots of people wandering around doing whatever they feel like? How does this thing come together and be one thing? So everyone told us this park does come together at one point at night at seven o'clock. Everyone told us you guys have to go to the General Assembly. That's where decisions get made that affect this group. So we went. Check! Check! My name is Jeff. My name is Jeff. So you probably heard of this. This is the form of communication called the people's mic. The police won't allow bullhorns, so the crowd repeats every phrase said by the person addressing the crowd. The night we went, the meeting was being led by two people, facilitators. Facilitators. But before the facilitators can begin facilitating the meeting, this dude in a puffy overcoat leaps out of the crowd to make this point about the facilitators. These are positions of power. These are positions of power. They have the power to tell us we can't talk. They have the power to tell us we can't talk. They lead this discussion in a direction. They lead this discussion in a direction. If they never ask for our consent, if they never ask for our consent, their power is illegitimate. Their power is illegitimate. Okay, so there is one rule here, and the rule is that decisions are made by consensus. The group consents to proposals by waving their fingers in the air, kind of like jazz hands. And then if they don't agree, they also do jazz hands, but upside down. And as you can imagine, it's hard to get 400 people to consent to anything. But soon enough, the night we went, all 400 people or so consented to the facilitators facilitating the meeting. And so we learned the General Assembly, this is where everyone gets together, but there's also these working groups, these subcommittees that meet throughout the day, the Sanitation Committee, the Finance Committee, the Legal Committee, and they all report back to the General Assembly. And so the night we were there, the Comfort Committee had a proposal about how to allocate some of the tens of thousands of dollars that have been donated to the group. We need sleeping bags. We need sleeping bags. Sleeping bags cost money. Sleeping bags cost money. We would like to request. We would like to request about two thousand dollars. About two thousand dollars. 
So people had a lot of questions for Sleeping Bag Man about his proposal. Does the proposal include a sales tax, which goes to the government? How will the sleeping bags be kept clean? My question is more pragmatic. My question is more pragmatic. Should we not just buy fabric? Should we not just buy fabric? And construct construct sleeping bags. And construct sleeping bags. Now, Zoe, what we realized was this General Assembly, this isn't just some logistical asterisk to the protest. This is what this whole thing is about. This is what they're for. This process itself, participatory democracy, that is what this group is demanding. I found an ex-Marine on the sidelines, Brian Phillips. He said exactly that. We have people speak, everyone votes on it, and we come to an agreement. And that's how we want society to be. That is how you want society to be. I don't think that this is by any means an efficient, particularly effective, or uh, or the only direct democracy process. It's not. This is Andrew Smith. He's facilitated a couple times at the General Assembly. There are many other models. This is the one we got, and we're going with it. You know, and it and it works to empower I mean, some people. It would be more effective, I would think. Like if you had this many people say and they were all for or against some specific thing. Like, we're but, all for the Volcker rule. Let's just go nuts and in, in favor of the Volcker rule. You know, Of course, it would be more effective. It would be more effective. But you say, of course it would be more effective. Like, that's a horrible thing to be. Is effective bad? Um, effective will disenfranchise people around here. People will feel like they're not getting their voices heard. They'll feel like the, the, the move... The, the affect is moving in a direction that they do not agree with, and they will quit the movement. It seems like that whole this whole organization of Occupy Wall Street is like a structure for people to bring their issues to and put them on, not like you have your own issue that yes. you're fomenting. Yes, I like it. Is that? I agree. Agreed. I just made that up. Perfect. You're That's what it's all about. Not a movement. Yeah, sure. exactly. Awesome. You guys can run with that. There's a narrative right there. We, can't, we got it. I think we got it. It's a venue, not a movement. Standing around and discussing what they want, that's what they want. That's their hope. Come gather around, children. It's high time he learns about a hero named Homer and a devil named Burns. We'll march till we drop the girls and the fellas. We'll fight till the death or else fold like umbrellas. So we'll march day and night by the big cooling tower. They have the plans, but we have the power. So we'll march day and night by the big cooling tower. They have the plans, but we have the power. So we'll march day and night by the big cooling tower. They have the plant, but we have the power. Now do classical gas. So we at Planet Money, we're economics reporters, so we immediately started to wonder, they want all of society run on this basis where... Lots of groups where everyone's equal gets together and just as a group decides what they want. Could that work? And and how would that work? Like just in the pragmatic stuff of like 
getting people the things they want and figuring out what to do with food and clothes and you know just the the basic structure of an economy so it turns out we found this economist who has been working on this problem for 40 years we caught him when he was on his way to occupy portland where he on his bicycle on his bicycle and he said that yes for 40 years he's been crafting this proposal for exactly this vision of society his name's robin hanel I call myself a libertarian socialist. Wait, to wait, wait. I got to interrupt you. Yeah, that's. I literally think of those as 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 opposites. You know, the, the that's right. Um, if you call yourself a libertarian socialist in the United States, they think, oh, you're like Ron Paul or you know Hayek, or they think, oh, you're a socialist, and that means Soviet socialist. So it's. I, I always hesitate to say that's what I am, but I believe that is an accurate way I can describe myself. Robin Hanel teaches economics at Portland State University, but earlier in his academic life, he was a math major, and that helped me understand where his whole theory came from. He basically started pondering a puzzle. In the waning days of the Soviet Union, when, when people like him, left-wing progressives, you know, really soured on the Soviet model, they were stuck with this problem. Wait, we don't like American-style capitalism, and we don't like Soviet or Chinese-style communism. So... What could we do? Could we create an economic system that was more democratic than capitalism and more democratic than than communism as it's practiced now? And what he came up with is called participatory economics, and it works a lot like the way the general assemblies that occupy Wall Street are structured. So, first of all, there's no owners, there's no managers, everyone is equal, and people gather in working groups to do business. The easiest way to picture it for me is is a factory. So you're a shoe factory. All the workers in the shoe factory gather and decide how we're going to run our shoe factory. One committee might come up with a proposal of what kinds of shoes we're going to make and, and which styles and how many. Another committee would create a proposal for how we're all going to be compensated. So he said some might decide everyone makes exactly the same amount, but he imagines a lot of worker groups will decide, no, if you work harder, you deserve more stuff. The harder you work, the the more you make, and it's not your boss deciding, it's your colleagues. And basically, they simply have to do what is a very difficult job and sometimes contentious. They have to essentially review one another's performance and decide, has somebody worked harder? You know, has somebody put in more effort? Has somebody made greater sacrifices than somebody else? And if so, then they are awarded, you know, by their co-workers, Robin recommend we we skim pretty quickly over over the next step. He spelled it out in several books, but basically there's this other process for how all the different working groups all over the region or all over the country that want a little more leather or want a little more rubber, there's sort of a central processing system that uses, as he says, a very simple computer algorithm he's come up with, which he says can determine supply and demand issues very efficiently without using what we in capitalism use, a, a price signal, where you just, if you want more leather, you just find out what the price is. And if lots of people want leather, the price goes up and you maybe substitute something else. The other thing the price signal does is it turns on a dime. You know, if if there's a disastrous frost destroying lots of orange crops in Florida, suddenly oranges are more expensive immediately all over the country. And we asked him how his system would respond to sudden shocks, since his system requires people to mail these proposals in from all over the country. It may be the case that one of the things that this system has a great has more difficulty in doing is making on-the-fly adjustments. 
um, because it's more participatory. We may discover that in the real world when this system is implemented that that is a place where it perhaps is a little weaker than some other systems that have gone before it. I'm, I'm perfectly willing to accept the fact that perhaps there's going to be some disadvantages to doing things this way as well as some tremendous advantages. Another issue that we wanted to ask Canel about was what about us, the, the consumers? You know, how do we buy stuff? There's basically not really money in his world, at least the way we use money. So the way you purchase, you have to decide a year in advance what you're going to consume. So your neighborhood gets together, you have another meeting, you submit a plan to a consumption council of what you guys all want to consume over the next year. So you decide how much toilet paper you're going to need, how many pillows or T-shirts and iPods and iPads, and your neighborhood consumption council sends its request to this centralized computer algorithm. Which is a very big difference from how we live today. I mean, I, I have no idea how many potatoes or eggs I'm going to want next August, say. This year would have been really hard for me because, you know, in January, I had no idea I was going to be having a kid at the end of the year, but I am. <gasps> oh, Adam, you're kidding. Congra That's the first I've heard of this. Congratulations. She's kidding because <laughs> Zoe, like the Amazon Corporation, know that my <laughs> consumption patterns have changed rather dramatically in the last few weeks as I'm buying all this baby stuff. And I asked Hanel about that. How does his system account for changes in what we want? How is that going to play out? Well, when you go through the checkout line of your neighborhood distribution center or stores or whatever, um, they're basically going to... They're going to keep track. They know what your approved consumption request for the year was. They know what you asked for. It's in their computer. And they're going to basically start giving you little tips. You know, at this rate, you know, you're not going to be consuming as much of this as you asked for. At this rate, you're taking a lot of stuff you never asked for. Uh, another thing I got to say that I thought a lot about listening to Hanel is, my God, this sounds like a lot of meetings. I feel like I have structured my life around avoiding meetings as much as possible. And he said, are you kidding? I'm an academic. I have been invited to lots of really awful, boring meetings. I can't stand meetings. Then why'd you I create an economics built on meetings? Yeah. If the decisions I care about are going to be made at the meetings that I'm, that I'm going to, then I think there's a lot more incentive for people to go to meetings. He's saying if people feel like their voice will be actually heard, then they'll be more into meetings. But if you really just can't get down with meetings, then you don't have to show up to make your voice heard. It's participatory, not mandatory. Although, he says, if you don't participate, there's a good chance you're not going to like the outcome. Now, obviously, there are a lot of things that people would object to here. But Robin Hanel has sort of a sales pitch to the Occupy Wall Streeters. He says to them, you know what, you're brand new at this, and that's fabulous, and you're bringing energy that my generation has long since lost. But keep in mind, people like me, we've been thinking about this for a very long time, and we've thought through some of the issues that you're going to come up with as you're pursuing this participatory democracy model of society. But Hanel says in no way does he hope that his generation, the older guys, take over this movement. He says he is so excited about what's going on right now. Because for him, like a real radical leftist, it's been a pretty lousy 20 years. You know, except for those anti-globalization skirmishes in Seattle in the late 90s, there just has not been a lot in our culture to, to really appeal to someone like him. So this is a very exciting moment for a guy like that. Ever since this crisis hit... I've been wondering, 
is there going to be a progressive, a looking forward, wake up call here in America? And I'm a lifelong leftist. And I remember tears came to my eyes when I was at the Battle of Seattle because I didn't know whether I would ever see that kind of demonstration again in my country. Um, I feel that way about this. Now, we should tell the folks at the General Assembly who, who don't already know, Robin Hanel's model, he calls it participatory economics, or PARICON, is just one of the models of an economics built on this small group democracy idea. We found out there are a ton of them. There's something called mutualism, analytical Marxism. There are dozens of different named forms of anarchism. Horizontalism, syndicalism. Post-autistic economics, that's a thing. Transformative economics. We could go on, and each of these has its own approaches, its own policies and structures, although they all broadly follow this model of participatory decision-making. If they could actually create a society based on participatory democracy on that level, it would be among the most radical changes ever contemplated for America. And it's tough because before you change America, you need to get 400 people in a park to agree on precisely how you want to change America. So they're meeting every night for several hours. One guy who said he didn't speak for everybody proposed a timeline that they will have a consensus view with a complete platform by November 20th. The mission of this show is to aggregate and amplify the best voices of the truly liberal media, and now you can play a critical role in helping fulfill that mission. I pick out the best clips I hear to share with you, and now you can do just the same thing extremely easily. Now available at bestoftheleft.com, each clip I play is made available individually with simple buttons that allow you to share your favorites on your networks through Facebook, Twitter, by email, and beyond. By myself, I can amplify this content to thousands of people, but collectively, we have the potential to reach millions. No kidding. Become your own media activist by taking one minute to share your favorite content a couple of days each week, help more people plug into the truly liberal media, and be an integral part of this extremely virtuous cycle. Thanks so much for your help. Okay, we've got a breaking news blast now. Quick poll data is showing that President Obama's popularity is skyrocketing after punching investment banker Ron Milner in the mouth a few hours ago. Witnesses say that while the banker did nothing to provoke the punch, which was captured by a photographer during a White House meet and greet, slugging the little Mr. Moneybags has given Obama instant credibility among voters who'd previously been critical of his reluctance to shatter some Wall Street prick's teeth with his fist. The president released a brief statement after the incident saying, quote, sometimes you see someone and you just know that you wouldn't be able to forgive yourself if you didn't knock his teeth halfway down his throat. I don't feel compelled to apologize. I see kids fighting to find the boys. They've been swimming in the sea without a shore of choice. Sometimes it's like I'm without a home. Last night I walked a thousand miles of freedom and revolt, or sink into the miasma of despair and apathy, either you are a rebel 
or a slave. To be declared innocent in a country where the rule of law means nothing, where we have undergone a corporate coup, where the poor and working men and women are reduced to joblessness and hunger, where war, financial speculation, and internal surveillance are the only real business of the state, where even habeas corpus no longer exists, where you as a citizen are nothing more than a commodity to corporate systems of power, one to be used and discarded, is to be complicit in this radical evil, to stand on the sidelines and say, I am innocent, is to bear the mark of Cain. It is to do nothing to reach out to help the weak, the oppressed, and the suffering to save the planet. To be innocent in times like these is to be a criminal. Ask the environmental activist Tim DeChristopher. Now in prison, choose, but choose fast. The state and the corporate forces are determined to crush this. They are not going to wait for you. They are terrified this will spread as it is spreading. They have their long phalanxes of police on motorcycles, their rows of white paddy wagons, their foot soldiers hunting for you on the streets with pepper spray and orange plastic nets. They have their metal barricades set up on every single street leading into the financial district in New York with the mandarins and Brooks Brothers suits use your money, money they stole from you, to gamble and speculate and gorge themselves while one in four children outside those barricades depend on food stamps to eat. Speculation in the 17th century was a crime. Speculators were hanged. Today they run the state and financial markets. They disseminate the lies that pollute our airwaves. They know, even better than you or I, how pervasive the corruption and theft has become how game the system is against you, how corporations have cemented into place a thin oligarchic class and an obsequious cadre of politicians, including Barack Obama, judges and journalists who live in their little gated Versailles, while six million Americans are thrown out of their homes, a number soon to rise to 10 million where a million people a year go bankrupt because they cannot pay their medical bills and 45,000 die from lack of proper care, where real joblessness is spiraling to over 20%, where the citizenry, including students, spend lives toiling in debt peonage, working dead-end jobs when they have a job, a world devoid of hope, a world of masters, and serfs. The only word these corporations know is more. They are disemboweling every last social service.
program funded by taxpayers from education to social security because they want that money for themselves. Let the sick die. Let the poor go hungry. Let families be tossed in the street. Let the unemployed rot. Let children in the inner city or rural wastelands learn nothing and live in misery and fear. Let students finish school with no jobs and no prospects of jobs. Let the prison system, the largest in the industrialized world, expand to swallow up all potential dissenters. Let torture continue. Let teachers, police, firefighters, postal employees, and social workers join the ranks of the unemployed. Let our imperial wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and our proxy wars in Yemen, Pakistan, and Somalia bankrupt the state and leave hundreds of thousands of innocents maimed and dead. Let the roads, bridges, dams, levees, power grids, rail lines, subways, bus services, schools, and libraries crumble or close. Let the rising temperatures of the planet, the freak weather patterns, the hurricanes, the droughts, the flooding, the tornadoes, the melting polar ice caps, the poisoned water systems, the polluted air increase until the species dies. Who the hell cares if the stocks of ExxonMobil or the coal industry or Goldman Sachs are high, life is good. Profit, profit, profit. This is what they chant behind those metal barricades in the financial district. They have their fangs deep into your necks. And if you do not shake them off very, very soon, they will kill you and they will kill the ecosystem, dooming your children and your children's children. And they are too stupid and too blind to see that they will perish with the rest of us. So either you rise up and supplant them, either you dismantle the corporate state for a world of sanity, a world where we no longer kneel before the absurd idea that the demands of financial markets should govern human behavior, or watch as we are frog-marched towards self-annihilation. Those on the streets around Wall Street and here tonight are the physical embodiment of hope. You know that hope has a cost, that it is not easy or comfortable, that it requires self-sacrifice and discomfort, and finally faith. And those who hope sleep on cement every night, and their clothes are soiled, and they have eaten more bagels and peanut butter than they ever thought possible, and they have tasted fear, been beaten, gone to jail, been blinded by pepper spray, cried, hugged each other, laughed, sung, talked too long in general assemblies, seen their chance drift upwards to the office towers above them and wondered if it is worth it, if anyone cares, if they will win. But as long as we remain steadfast, we can see our way out of the corporate labyrinth. This is what it means to be alive.
you tonight and those in New York and Philadelphia and Los Angeles and Boston and dozens of other cities across this country are the best among us. Camp, and this is your moment of clarity. I was watching a documentary on Pompeii, the city in Rome that was completely covered by volcanic ash thousands of years ago, making it a sight to behold for excited tourists and overwhelmed chimney sweeps. We now know that the people of Pompeii were warned of the impending disaster by huge earthquakes that hit the city in the days before. Many left, but some stayed. What could be so important that some would stay in a collapsing city? Well, some of the bones found recently are permanently dyed green by a chemical reaction between the bones and gold. These people were clutching huge amounts of gold when they gasped their final breaths. As the world crashed and burned around them, many only feared for their jewelry. Sound familiar? Seen any buy gold commercials recently? So are we there yet? As our society violently realizes it can't continue down this path, are we going to simply cling to our gold? And we do know it's slowly ending. We've felt the economic earthquakes. Even if you've been denying it somewhere, somewhere deep down, you know this system is not sustainable. Let's play a little game similar to Jeff Foxworthy's You Might Be a Redneck If. It's called You Might Know Our System Isn't Sustainable If. When you see a homeless man shiver on a street corner while being passed by a dog wearing a turtleneck, you might know our system isn't sustainable. When you hear the U.S. has the most obese people in the world and the most anorexic people in the world at the same fucking time, you might know our system isn't sustainable. When you read in Us Weekly that a supermodel has sued her ex-husband for $46,000 per month for child support, you might know our system isn't sustainable. When you hear that we export 11 million tons of beef and veal and import 11 million tons of beef and veal, you might know no, our system isn't sustainable. When you hear that the U.S. is funding both sides of the war in Afghanistan, you might know our system isn't sustainable. If you own commemorative plates that have photos of your dead dog on them, you might be a redneck. Oh, sorry, that, that last one was uh, Jeff Foxworthy's list. I, 
Sorry. So the question remains, are we going to koala bear ourselves onto a pile of gold as the ship goes down, staining our bones green forevermore so future peoples and species can dig us up and go, wow, they really liked certain kinds of rocks. This one mineral in particular appears to be more important than their friends, their families, their very existence. That must have been some fucking rock. God damn it. I wish we had rocks like that. I bet those rocks gave unconditional love and compliment your hair and give you blowjobs and do the dishes all at once. If I had a stone like that, I would take it into the afterlife with me too. Motherfucker. Or, if you believe in a god and an afterlife, maybe that's why gold hoarders are permanently dyed green, so that in the afterlife, everyone can know who the greedy bastards are. Like a scarlet letter or an exploding dye pack in a bank robbery. After this world, all the bankers and politicians and CEOs are dyed green, so that they can be ostracized and treated like second-class citizens. Signs at restaurants saying, no greens allowed, denied justice jobs and apartments and loans simply based on the color of their bones. Now that is an afterlife I could believe in. With America wallowing in a second Gilded Age, market chaos continuing, and centrists becoming rightist, it was only a matter of time before, then meets now. At long last, Occupy Wall Street has found their spokesperson. We need to correct by drastic means, if necessary, the faults in our economic system from which we now suffer. We need the courage of the young. A lot of these guys miss the 60s, and they love the, you know, the grow their hair and let their freak flags fall. These economic royalists complain that we seek to overthrow the institutions of America. What they really complain of is that we seek to take away their power. Our allegiance to American institutions requires the overthrow of this kind of power. I, for one, am increasingly concerned about the growing mobs occupying Wall Street and the other cities across the country. Liberty of a democracy is not safe if the people tolerate the growth of private power to a point where it becomes stronger than their democratic state itself. That, in its essence, is fascism. I think it's dangerous, this class warfare. Among us today, a concentration of private power without equal in history is growing. And so the eloquent, if somewhat long-winded, spokesperson of Occupy Wall Street went on to win not two, not three, but four consecutive presidential terms. But that was then, and this is now.
Hey, Jay, this is John from Tulsa, Oklahoma again. I just want to call and give a observation about the Occupy Wall Street. I've been listening to a lot of the coverage and something that's not getting a lot of coverage, but I think is a really interesting and unique part of the Occupy Wall Street is the human megaphone concept. Uh, I came out to the Occupy Tulsa on Saturday and uh, we were allowed to have amplification devices, including a megaphone uh, that got passed around. And with a slight breeze uh, and a couple of people murmuring in the background, if you're more than five rows back or the, the microphone was turned the other direction, I couldn't hear anything that was being said. And I think that the human megaphone concept as the, as the Occupy Wall Street has, has, uh, has done is a great way. It may be somewhat less efficient as an ampli amplification device. Uh, however, it gets a lot more people involved. And psychologically, listening to something and saying it start two different parts of your brain and saying something, I believe, will make you feel a lot more deeply about it. And so getting a lot more people involved that way, I feel like uh, probably keeps the excitement level at a much higher uh, place. I know that, you know, with the, the time that we were at the, uh, the, the Occupy Tulsa, it, after about a half an hour of not really being able to hear the rallying speeches and stuff because the megaphone wasn't working that well, uh, it got you know frustrating and and a little bit boring and a lot of people were just crying out from the back let's march let's get started let's do something we can't hear you anyways so uh there was uh that aspect to it uh i just wanted to call and say thanks for all that you do and point that out have a great one Hi, Jay. This is Kim from Phoenix, Arizona, and I kind of just wanted to call and share my story from the Occupy movement this weekend. I was arrested on Saturday night with 45 other wonderful, beautiful protesters. Um, most of them, most of the arrests were nonviolent. We had a couple of cases of, you know, being dragged on the ground and uh, someone getting hit in the face, but for the most part, the cops were really, you know, were really... Uh, on the unviolent side as opposed to what is happening in a uh, good old New York over there. Uh, as we are in Arizona, we were all taken to the Maricopa County Jail, which is Sheriff Joe's jail, and we all kind of know the brutality that goes on in there. Uh, we were held for 14 hours, and we were charged with a class one misdemeanor loitering it was original class three trespassing but they decided to up it to loitering to sort of scare us um but i did kind of want to say that all of us you know as the jail was very cold we weren't fed very often and you know the cops do play mind games with you and it was it wasn't the best experience but i do want to say that i did learn a lot from my fellow protesters and I did learn a lot from my fellow inmates, you know, other protesters who weren't with us. We were able to talk to each other. We had our own general assemblies. We did mic checks. We did yoga. We ran around to keep warm. We, it, it was a definitely a learning experience. It was scary. It was just an experience and I think that you know once you stop being afraid of being arrested once you kind of let go of that fear it is what you make of it and it is for a good cause you know to be arrested for this movement I think is something that can go a long way to show that we are in solidarity with everyone and it will eventually make an impact on our system thanks Jay just wanted to share that I love 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 your show have a good day
Hey, Jay. My name is Alex. I'm calling from Richmond, Virginia. Uh, I just listened to the first show that you did on Occupy Wall Street. I thought it was great. I've been involved with Occupy Richmond down here. Uh, we're actually, uh, I- I'm actually headed over there right now because uh, apparently the police are going to address us in an hour. Uh, so we may be, uh, they may be attempting to evict us from Kanawha Plaza where we are. But uh, we'll see what happens. Uh, we're going to need all the luck we can get on that one. But I just wanted to call to encourage everyone, if you have an Occupy movement in your area, get involved. They need you. They need, they, they need you to be there. And if you can't be there, they do need you to donate. They need you to uh, work Facebook, work Twitter, to send out all the messages you can in support of Occupy Wall Street. And the, uh, there was a caller on today's show, or the show that I was listening to today anyway, uh, that was talking about Occupy the Media, calling into television shows, calling into radio shows. We need you to do that. We need you to back us up if you support us. And we need you to do something about it. That's the beauty of this movement. This is not just people who have been complaining. We're all people who are trying to do something and we're getting out here and, and putting our efforts um, and our really our, our asses uh, on the line. So um, we need all the support we can get if we're really going to make a difference. Hey, Jay, this is Jake from New York Alt News. Should we interrupt our lives to join one of the Occupy movements? Um, we all have responsibilities. We all have bills to pay. Some of us have kids at home. And we can't really put in the time that we might want to. So what we need to do instead is occupy the media. So what we can do is we can use a version of the people's mic that works online. Um, I joined something uh, which is called Occupy the Media, and you can uh, you can add comments and you could add links for anything that you see like this to a page at tiny.cc slash Occupy the Media. And that's a shortcut that brings you to this live blog where you can just enter anything, anybody can, no matter where you are, and you can put in things that you see that are distorted or that are distracting us. Remember, they don't want us to talk about campaign finance reform. They don't want us to talk about fixing our broken system. They want us to talk about, you know, how dirty the protesters are or, you know, police brutality or free speech or whether an umbrella is a freestanding structure. I mean, they win if we're talking about anything other than the undue influence of the rich on our politics and when we're going to change it. So thanks a lot for what you're doing, Jay, and I, I hope that, uh, you know, the, the people that are listening can get active and can get involved in some way, in some, you know, free time that you have to try and help this effort. Take care. Thanks for listening, everyone, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 206-202-3410. So I was reading an article recently uh, about Steve Jobs. Of course, he died recently, and lots of people are writing articles about him. And this one was basically just a compilation of some of his best quotes. So I was reading through his, his quotes, and as anyone would do, was comparing them to my own life or my own thoughts or politics or this show and things of that nature. So I thought it'd be interesting to share some of the quotes that stuck out to me and explain how they related to me in this show since, you know, you're listening to this show, you might find it interesting. And so this is what he says about creativity, and this is essentially uh, exactly how I feel anytime anyone praises me for this show. 
So he says, creativity is just connecting things. When you ask creative people how they did something, they feel a little guilty because they didn't really do it. They just saw something. It seemed obvious to them after a while. That's because they were able to connect experiences they've had and synthesize new things. And the reason they were able to do that was that they've had more experiences or they have thought more about their experiences than other people. So yeah, I don't think I even need to explain the relationship uh, <laughs> from between that quote and this show. So moving on, uh, he, he makes this point that uh, I've actually made a couple of times recently on the show, on the show and I never claimed to have come up with this idea independently. I actually witnessed it at my previous job, internalized it, believed in it, and, uh, and have now passed it on to, uh, you know, friends and advice and, and on the show and so forth. And so, uh, you know, I think about it in terms of campaigning, you know, politically or, or otherwise. And of course, uh, Steve is talking about it in terms of developing new products, but he says, and it comes from saying no to a thousand things to make sure we don't get on the wrong track or try to do too much. We're always thinking about new markets we could enter, but it's only by saying no that you can concentrate on the things that are really important. Uh, and then finally, just the one I wanted to include in here because uh, everyone can stand to hear this uh, over and over again. He says, your work is going to fill a large part of your life and the only way to be truly satisfied is to do what you believe is great work. And the only way to do great work is to love what you do. If you haven't found it yet, keep looking. Don't settle. As with all matters of the heart, you'll know it when you find it. And like any great relationship, it just gets better and better as the years roll on. So keep looking until you find it. Don't settle. So with that, it is obviously time to uh, thank members for allowing me to do this show as I do. And, uh, and they are absolutely the reason I can do it. Uh, so James L. signed up for a leftist monthly membership back on March 6th and has stuck with the show since then. And Grant W. Uh, also signed up for a uh, leftist membership on April 22nd, but signed up for a full year in advance. So huge thanks to James and Grant and all the members and donors who uh, make this show possible. I couldn't do without you guys in the most literal sense of the word. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and spreading the word about individual clips, especially. You can do that through the show notes. Stay tuned in between episodes by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. You can even donate your Facebook and Twitter accounts to us to help us spread the word through you that way. Details about that are through the Donate Your Account badge right on the website. And for details on the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information is always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every third day. Thanks entirely to the members and donors of the show from bestofleft.com